got your Bible on you, go ahead and open it up to Isaiah chapter 58. And if you don't have a Bible, don't be ashamed. Lift your hand up. We'll hand you a, a pew Bible. And um, we also have uh, the words up on the screen for most of the scriptures. So right on. Got one Bible. Anybody else? Keep those hands up over here too. Better not, boy. Okay, geez, man. <laughs> Isaiah chapter 58. Why don't we just stand together and let's just pray over our time in the Word. Sorry, I know some of you are comfortable. It's the last thing we want. <laughs> if you want to join me even, let's just lift our hands to the Lord and just consecrating our heart over this study. Lord, we are here today to just seek your face. We want to worship you and glorify you. We want to just dive into the pool of intimacy with you. Lord, such a special day, literally like a wedding day to spend with the groom, the bridegroom of the church. And Lord, there is so much that we come with expectancy, expecting great things from you as we attempt great things for you. And Lord, we are just in desperate need for a touch from you. Lord, we need you by your spirit to come and swoop in and just move humility in our lives, Lord, that we would humble ourselves before you, confess our sins, Lord, that we would even humble ourselves to afflict ourselves during this fast and cry out in desperation for you. Lord, we long for you. As much as we're hungry for breakfast, as much as we're hungry for food, as much as we're hungry for the media that we may be fasting from, or the relationships, or the communication, Lord, that we would be uh, fasting from, Lord, we're even more hungry for you. We are more desperate for you. Lord, there are those in this place that don't know you as Savior and Lord yet. And God, we pray that before they even think of fasting, Lord, that they would turn their hearts over to you and allow you to breathe new life. Uh, into their soul, that they might be born again. Lord, we as a church blow the trumpet, Lord, right now. We consecrate a fast, a sacred assembly, and we say, have your way, Lord. As we go through Isaiah 58 and you speak to us from your word of what you desire this fast to be, Lord, speak through me and beyond me. Let us hear your heart, your vision, and specific things that you want to do. We are waiting in expectancy, and we believe you for great things, for your glory, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Have a seat. J.D. Greer has said that spiritual disciplines are like wires that connect us to the power of the gospel. They have no power in themselves, but they connect us to the place from which power flows. They are gateways to the gospel, but not the gospel themselves. And so as we come into this week of spiritual discipline, we are just connecting ourselves to the avenue and the highway that leads us uh, you know, from the gospel. Just hearts that spring up from having the Holy Spirit dwelling in us, desire to press in and discipline ourselves, bringing our body under subjection that we might know Christ more. One of the greatest preachers in the first thousand years of church history was named John Chrysostom. Chrysostom wasn't his last name, it was actually his nickname, and it meant golden-tongued. 
Practically everything he said caused people to weep and to cry and to stand up and begin clapping. During one sermon, he began the sermon by saying, please don't get up and clap. I need to finish my message. And people got up and started clapping. You know, we pray for that gift, you know, every day here at this church. But he's left us one of the most sweeping statements about the value of fasting. This man Chrysostom, the bishop of Constantinople in the fourth century. Now, he was known as an ascetic in a time of luxurious living, and his lifestyle often offended the emperor Arcadius and his wife Eudoxia so much that he was eventually banished and died in AD 407. And here is what Chrysostom said on fasting. Fasting is as much as lies in us an imitation of the angels, a condemning of things present, a school of prayer, a nourishment of the soul, a bridle of the mouth, an abatement of concupiscence, which is a desire for sexual intimacy, if you have to look up the definition. It mollifies rage, it appeases anger, it calms the tempests of nature, It excites reason, it clears the mind, it disburdens the flesh, it chases away night pollutions, it frees from headache. By fasting, a man gets composed behavior, free utterance of his tongue, and right apprehensions of his mind. Sound like something you need? certainly sounds like something I need. And we believe as we come and roll up our sleeves and press in to Jesus this week, that his arm is not too short to save. We believe that he has appointed this week for leading and for him to stretch out his hand forth to confound his enemies. We pray for it and we press in for it this week. To awaken the joy and the power within the church. We press into it this week. And that the Lord might use Calvary Chapel of the dinky little town of Prineville for the evangelization of the world. His arm is not too short. Now, as Chrysostom said, sometimes fasting is the removal of headaches and sometimes it's not. Sometimes it's actually the bringer on of headaches. There's such times during fastings that you think, this is so bad, how can it be of any spiritual value? But it is precisely the adversity in fasting that causes the value to arise out of it. As you guys know, when your tummy begins to rumble, you say, God, I am longing for you with the rumbling of my stomach and with my hunger. The point of fasting is to feel discomfort and to afflict yourself so that every time the pain arises, you say, I need you, Jesus. I want you, Jesus. We want to have more of you in our lives and less of us. And so we want to just look through the chapter 58 of Isaiah and just glean some things regarding fasting. I may even just throw in some other things that God's put in my heart that I couldn't make the text say. So, um, but we will go through the scriptures. Verse 1, cry aloud, spare not, 
Lift up your voice like a trumpet. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. As you remember from last week in Joel chapter 2, when, this, when the, the consecrated fast takes place, Joel says, blow the trumpet, call a fast, bring about the sacred assembly. This trumpet blast. As you read the scriptures, and you, know, you might remember even Revelation a few different times, the voice of the Lord is referred to as a trumpet blast, just with power and authority and exciting us to the battle charge. Well, here Isaiah is told, cry out, blow the sound of the trumpet and tell my people their sin. Now, the nation of Israel was in major sin at the time. It was so serious that the prophet needed to grab their attention with loud announcements. And before he really gets into it, he's going to show us in verses 2 through 5 that they had been fasting wrongly. And it's going to be a good reminder and example to us of how not to fast this week. And you look at verse 2. It says, Yet they seek me daily and delight to know my ways as a nation that did righteousness and did not forsake the ordinance of their God. They ask of me the ordinances of justice. They take delight in approaching God. The nation was coming to the Lord as if they didn't have this blatant practicing sin in their life and they came as if they were righteous people, fasting in their own righteousness, seeking the Lord constantly, but not being real before the Lord, nor allowing his spirit to convict them of the sin that they'd been walking in. They had asked the Lord for justice and would delight in the thought that he was near to them when really he was far from them. In the same way that Jesus said of Nazareth in Matthew 15, 8, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And we would say perish the thought in this church in this week that we might not give lip service. And you might be one that would come to every single session and read every single chapter and be part of every single prayer meeting. But if your heart is far from the Lord and you don't allow his spirit to convict you and to change you and to work about repentance in your life, then you're coming from a wrong point and from a wrong place. Verse three of Isaiah 58 says, why have we fasted, they say, And you've not seen. Why have we afflicted our soul and you take no notice? In fact, in the day of your fast, you find pleasure and exploit all your laborers. Indeed, you fast for strife and debate and to strike with the fist of wickedness. You will not fast as you do this day to make your voice heard on high. And so by the end of the fast, there's this frustration. We feel like God hasn't even heard us in our time of fasting. And the Lord says, Then the whole time that you fasted, it was just a joke. It was just a time of of pleasure and goofing off. And you were even more wicked than you were before. You actually were striking people with a fist of wickedness in the midst of your fasting. As the proverb says, 21-27, the sacrifice of the wicked is an abomination. How much more when he brings it with wicked intent? And if the Holy Spirit speaks conviction in you of any wicked intent in your fast, repent of it immediately. 
The spiritually insensitive Israelites did not consciously fast so that they could be contentious and strive and beat one another up. But these were the results. These are just the facts of their fasts. Fasting made them grouchy and belligerent. They took these sinful feelings out on their neighbors and in their employees. It would have been better in their neighbor's case if they just would have never fasted at all rather than fasting and not mourning over their sinfulness. And so why is verse 2 through 5 unacceptable to God? What's wrong with their type of fast? The wrong type of fast here is that it left the sin in their lives untouched. The only authentic fasting is fasting that includes spiritual attack against our sin. And how fitting that we've been in Romans chapter 8. That if by the Spirit we kill sin in our life, we will live. You guys, fasting is what Galatians speaks of when it says, If you sow to the Spirit, you will reap everlasting life. Fasting should be that time that includes spiritual attack against our own sin. Whatever it is on your little list that you're fasting for this week, we must fast for our own personal holiness. We cannot fast for anything with authenticity while we're living in known unrepentant sin. The only authentic praying prayer includes that attack against our own sin. And the same is with worship, that in worship we would come and sound the charge, just like Jehoshaphat with his worship team, that they would fight, that we would fight against sin. And so what this text is emphasizing is that our action tomorrow on Monday is the test of whether or not we're really fasting today on Sunday. If you go to work tomorrow, you're a jerk to your employee or your, your co-workers, you know, and you're just taking out just rage on them, then you know there needs to be some repentance and to come back in humility and allow the Lord to work by his spirit in my life. If there's an unresolved pocket of sin in your life and you're fasting about something else, some blessing or some healing, then God would come to you and say in verses 2 through 5 of Isaiah 58, There's something else. There's something else you need to fast for. It's that. It's that sin right there. Humble yourself and cry out for freedom, deliverance, and forgiveness. As Richard Foster says, if pride controls us, it will be revealed almost immediately during the fast. David said, I humbled myself with fasting. Anger, bitterness, jealousy, strife, fear. If they are within us, they will surface during fasting. At first, we will rationalize that our anger is due to our hunger. Then we know that we are angry because the spirit of anger is within us. We can rejoice in this knowledge because we know that healing is available through the power of Christ. Now, as we begin to work through the rest of the chapter... We'll see highly peppered throughout this text that there is a fast in repentance from sins of oppression against others, sins of afflicting others. Highly peppered throughout the text uh, text is a call towards social justice, 
feeding the poor during our fast, housing the homeless during our fast. And I think one of the greatest, greatest social injustices that we see in our culture today is the murder of little babies by mothers, by doctors, by people that make the choice for mothers. And so I want to call us to fast for our little ones this week. Those that are in the wombs of our state, those that are in the wombs of our nation. Just like in Ezra chapter 8 verse 21, there was a fast proclaimed at the river Ahava that we might humble ourselves before our God to seek from him the right way for us and our little ones and our possessions. There is a huge event in the making for Oregon's history right now. This Oregon 2012 citizen-wide initiative to end the mandatory public funding of abortion. And if you've come and been part of this church for the last few weeks and you've said, I have nothing to fast for, and yet you know that this is in the making, boom, you've just been given the thing to fast for. To fast for the little ones, the little innocent ones that can't defend themselves was listening to John Piper this week, and he said, I must confess, I have never fasted a day in my life for the cause of the unborn. And I would join him in that confession. 3,000 babies a year that are slaughtered by our tax money, and we don't have a choice in it. And I've never fasted for that. Let's press in this week. And pray and fast and read for the cause of the little ones. Have we done what the Bible offers us as a possibility to have victory in this war? Have we utilized the spiritual tool of fasting for the unborn? This battle will be won not by bombing abortion clinics, but by having brokenness in our heart, humility, and a willingness to suffer for the cause. We want to relate this week to the suffering of the infant, not the suffering of the abortionist. And so press in with me like Ezra and fast in humility for the cause of the unborn. And so springing off of that idea that throughout the text is fight for those that are oppressed. Fight for those that are afflicted. In your time of fasting, give the food that you would be eating to those that are hungry Verse 5 says, Is it a fast that I have chosen, a day for a man to afflict his soul? Is it to bow down his head like a bulrush and to spread out sackcloth and ashes? Would you call this a fast and an acceptable day to the Lord? <clears throat> the answer is yes and no. Okay, both actually. Okay, in one sense, this was not the kind of fast that God approved. It consisted only of his people bowing their heads and not bowing their hearts. Bowing the head like a reed here expresses this formal worship like a reed just automatically bowing its head as the wind pushes it over. Just a religious response to the wind. The people would sit in sackcloth and in ashes, but they didn't really mourn over their disobedience. They just went with the religious flow of the children of Israel. 
They thought that their outward fasting and bowing and dressing and adorning themselves were more important than their attitudes and their behaviors, even though they probably didn't realize it. And that's why Joel says, hey, rip your heart and not your garments. Have a broken heart. If you're going to fast without that heart, don't fast. If you're going to fast, cry out for the broken heart. In Psalm 51, 16 and 17, David says, You did not desire sacrifice, or else I would give it. You did not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. So as we come in this sacred assembly. We cry that the Lord would give us broken hearts over our sin and contrite spirits. As Peter says in second, uh, 1 Peter 2, 5, that we would come together like living stones being built up in a spiritual house this week, that we would be that holy priesthood that we as the church are offering up spiritual sacrifices to God through Jesus Christ. Let's operate as the holy priesthood that God has made us. As one man said, when we worship because it's the popular thing to do, not because it's the right thing to do, then our worship becomes hypocritical. Let's come together rightly as those holy priesthood, as those who are each living stones in the temple of the Lord. Well, now we get to this bright spot in the chapter where we see this true worship, this acceptable worship in verse 6. We see that uh, the... Idea of fasting to free the captives is proclaimed. Is this not the fast that I've chosen to loose the bonds of wickedness, to undo the heavy burdens, to let the oppressed go free, and that you break every yoke? We proclaim a fast this week to release captives. Those within our midst that are held captive to sin, to addiction to demonic possession that, yes, is within our town and probably even within our circles of influence. To cry out to God for freedom from mental illness that just holds the mind captive. Sin that just seems to hold people in bondage. And you know what, folks? This is why Jesus came In Luke chapter 4, verse 16, at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, it says he came to Nazareth where he'd been brought up. And as his custom was, he went into the synagogue on the Sabbath day and stood up to read. And so he was handed the book of the prophet Isaiah. And when he'd opened the book, he found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor. He has sent me to heal the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to set at liberty those who are oppressed, to proclaim the acceptable year of the Lord. Then Jesus closed the book, gave it back to the attendant and sat down and the eyes of all who were in the synagogue were fixed on him. And he began to say to them, Today, this scripture is fulfilled in your hearing. This is glorious. 
The moment that the prophets had been pointing towards, the moment that the people had been waiting for, who is going to deliver us from this oppression, from this affliction? There is no good news. In fact, the people had been in a season of some 400 years of no revelation from prophets. And here comes Jesus and says, today, this, this prophecy is fulfilled in your hearing. And you know what? This is part of the kingdom now, you guys. That where the spirit of the Lord is, there is freedom. He who the sun sets free is what? Free indeed. Are you poor? There is good news for you. It's the good news of the battlefield. Are you brokenhearted? There is healing for you today. Are you a captive? There is liberty. Are you blind? There is sight. Are you oppressed? There is freedom. Jesus came and proclaimed the acceptable year of the Lord. 2012. 2012. Right now we can be a part of the acceptable year of the Lord. And we can experience Isaiah 58.6 in Crook County. Verse 7 Is this fast not to share your bread with the hungry, that you bring to your house the poor who are cast out, when you see the naked that you cover him and not hide yourself from your own flesh? This humility, recognizing there are people suffering around us. Well, I've got a whole bunch of food that I'm not eating. I'm going to give it to the poor. I'm going to ornament the gospel in my community. There are people even within our church, people who are homeless. What's that spare bedroom doing? What's that spare bathroom? Just so that someone could have a shower. Man, let's afflict our soul. Let's partake with the affliction of those that go through it every single day. Cover those that are uh, naked even. As Daniel said in in Daniel 4.27, He says, King King Nebuchadnezzar, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, doing these good deeds does not forgive you of your sins, but rather it shows that you have been forgiven of your sins. That God has busted forth through your heart and giving you a love for people. The same love that he himself showed when he fasted for 33 years and came and offered his life up as a ransom for many. Bust through your iniquities. Show that you are forgiven by giving to the poor and to the hurting. Philemon rejoices, or Paul rejoices to Philemon in chapter 1 verse 7. We have great joy and comfort in your love because of the hearts of the saints have been refreshed by you, brother. Has anyone here ever heard of that, you know, someone giving from our body and refreshing somebody else's heart and it just causes you to rejoice and give glory to God? Archer says, no religious observance has value for Jehovah that is not supported by a godly law-abiding life and compassion towards those in needs. It's the same heart that Jesus had. If we're yearning and longing for his heart, he's going to impart to us 
uh, the heart to help those in need. And if you don't have that heart, you confess that you don't have that heart and you cry out for that heart by the Spirit of God. Verse 8, Then your light shall break forth like the morning, your healing shall spring forth speedily, and your righteousness shall go before you. The glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. And so not only are we fasting for the cause of those that are oppressed and afflicted and actually repenting, as you see the context suggests, we're repenting for those that we've been oppressing and we've been afflicting. If you've been a jerk, you repent for being a jerk. If you've been cranky or crabby or belligerent, disrespectful to your authorities in your life, you repent And so not only are we fasting for ourselves, repentance for that, but also receiving freedom from oppression. But also we fast for radiant light. Then your light shall break forth like the morning. Jesus says that those that are Christians are the light of the world. A city that's set on a hill cannot be hidden. If you have the Holy Spirit in you, you are like a lighthouse on the coast. You're a beacon pointing people to the good news of the gospel of Jesus. The Luke chapter 4, that there is one that has come. And I'm going to shine my beacon of light over towards him. Look at Jesus. He brings the freedom. As the Proverbs say, 418, The path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter unto the perfect day. And those are some of you, God has sovereignly brought you here today and your life is marked not by light, but rather by darkness. There is a dark cloud of some form over your life. And I just encourage you, be part of this fasting and watch light come out that you've never seen in your life before. Come with us, join us. Experience just the healing and the radiant light of the Lord. We also see here in verse eight that there's a fasting For healing, your healing shall uh, spring forth speedily. If you have a bodily affliction, if you have a need for healing, I beg of you, do not let even this day go by before you have said, I have a disease or an affliction physically and I cry out for healing. I didn't even think to cry out for healing before this morning, but you know what? Right now I say, how great is our God who is able to perform it Who is able to heal? Hey, you know what? Now, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I might be healed. Do not let this week go by without making us aware of your infirmity and letting us press in for seven days and in our hunger saying, as hungry as I am, I long for this person to be healed of this affliction. Don't rob us of that privilege. We fast for healing in so many different ways. Mental healing spiritual healing. We fast for God's righteousness and for his glorious presence, you see at the end of the last two lines there of verse 8. And your righteousness shall go before you. So we have the presence of the Lord in front of us. But then the glory of the Lord shall be your rear guard. We've also got protection in the rear. We've got a point man and we've got someone bringing up the back end, protecting us. The presence of God himself. Exodus 14, 9 says that it was the angel of God. That's Jesus who went before the camp of Israel. He moved and went behind them. And the pillar of cloud went from before them and stood behind them. 
when we press in and long for God with our hunger, we've got this radical protection and leading, the righteousness of God in front of us and the glory of God behind us. Verse 9. Then you shall call and the Lord will answer. You shall cry and he will say, here I am. If you take away the yoke from your midst, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. And so we fast to hear God. Many of you have big decisions that you need to make. And I am always just blown away how people make these huge, radical, life-altering decisions. And they just come and tell you that they've made this decision. They haven't asked for godly counsel. They haven't searched what the word has to say about it. They haven't waited on the Lord and waited for a peace in their heart. They haven't fasted over it. And I just beg of you, if you have a big decision of of, of any sort, press in and fast. Seek godly counsel. for. There's no decision that we won't earnestly seek God with you in. And we'll speak the truth. We need each other to show each other our blind spots. I'll tell you what, I'm just going to do what I want. Unless someone tells me otherwise, I'm going to do what I want. I'm going to pray about it and then I'm going to do what I want. And so I need you guys to go, whoa, bro. Have you looked about this? Have you checked this out? What about this scripture? Have you fasted and prayed about it? It is our privilege to get to be a part of your decision making. Ultimately, is it up to you? Yeah, we're not, uh, excuse me, we're not Nicolaitans. Jesus hated those guys ruling over the people and making their decisions for them. But it's very biblical to press in with others corporately to seek the right way, to seek the right way. And so we fast to hear him. You'll call, the Lord will answer. You'll cry and he will say, here I am. Just as Psalm 34, 15 and 17 say, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ears are open to their cry. The face of the Lord is against those who do evil to cut off the remembrance of them from the earth. The righteous cry out, the Lord hears and delivers them out of their troubles. But notice the clause there. If you take away the yoke from your midst, verse 9, the pointing of the finger and the speaking of wickedness. Now, it's no secret because we're all sinners, we know it. But some would come to this week of fasting with blatant all-out wickedness in their life. Things that have gone on that I have just said, it's wickedness. And there needs to be repentance before we press in to this fast. As Psalm 66, 18 says, if I regard iniquity in my heart, the Lord will not hear. Don't waste your time and don't waste our time by participating in the fast with the heart that will not repent of sin when the Lord convicts you of it. God's not going to hear you. It's a waste of your time. Come in with a heart of humility saying, God, whatever you show me, my hands are open. You take it from me. I want to humble myself and turn from my wicked ways. Verse 10, if you extend your soul to the hungry and satisfy the afflicted soul, again, this social justice that accompanies fasting, then your light will dawn in the darkness and your darkness shall be as noonday. So here we have just this light that comes once again. This radiant beam that shoots forth of those that press in to seek God and cultivate intimacy with him. 
Verse 11, the Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones. You shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. Beautiful verse. Bonus round. We're going to read it again because it's so beautiful. The Lord will guide you continually and satisfy your soul in drought and strengthen your bones you shall be like a watered garden and like a spring of water whose waters do not fail. We are fasting this week for Jesus to bring us out of spiritual drought. You might even say we are fasting for revival. Revival. Just as in Ezekiel, Ezekiel was seen Uh, was taken to the top of a hill and he looked out over a valley and the valley was full of dry bones. Just dry bones. But then the spirit of the Lord came and moved amongst the midst of those dry bones and they began to shake and clatter and then shake and move together. And then joints and sinews and tendons were put together and formed and flesh and muscle was put and, and organs and you know instruments were brought together out of all those dry bones. And these men came and they were once again a living army. And there are so many of us that our spirituality, our relationship with Christ has come down to the point we are dry bones. There is no life. There's no vigor. There's no care for the great commission. We've never led somebody to Christ, nor have we even spoken the gospel to them. We are dry. We are not using our gifts for the edification of the body of Christ. We are dry. We are like the sponge that you have next to your sink right now that is dry and hard, and you can knock it against the counter and make a noise. But then the Holy Spirit would take us and plunge us into the sink and make us useful again, full of moisture. We need revival at Calvary Chapel of Crook County. We need revival in Rory Rogers and in you. God, revive us. Satisfy our soul in drought. A man named William Sprague wrote a book called Lectures in Revival back in 1832. One of the men uh, later on said, uh, he wrote the... uh, the flyleaf in the copy of this book, he wrote, it's the most valuable book. I love the good sense of Dr. Sprague. It was republished in 1958. And as it's republished, Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote the foreword. And in the foreword of this book, he said, I'm profoundly convinced that the greatest need in the world today is revival in the church of God. Yet, alas, The whole idea of revival seems to have become strange to so many good Christian people. This is due both to a serious misunderstanding of the scriptures and to woeful ignorance of the history of the church. My prayer is that as we read it and are reminded of our glorious God and of his mighty deeds in times past among his people, a great sense of our own unworthiness and and inadequacy And a corresponding longing for the manifestation of his glory and his power will be created within us. His arm is not shortened. May this book stir us all to plead with him to make bare that arm and to stretch it forth again that his enemies might be confounded and scattered and his people's hearts will be filled with gladness and rejoicing. Francis Whalen was an outstanding Baptist pastor. He was president of Brown University in Rhode Island. And in 1832, he wrote a letter to William Sprague that Sprague included within the book. 
And so let's get a, just get a flavor of what revival means and how God uh, brings it about through this letter written to Sprague by Francis Whalen. I believe in the existence of revivals of religion as much as I believe in any other fact, either physical or moral. By revivals of religion, I mean special seasons in which the minds of men within a certain district or in a certain congregation are more than usually susceptible to impression from the exhibition of moral truth. For example, ministers are more than usually desirous of the conversions of men. They possess habitually an unusual power of presenting the simple truths of the gospel directly to the consciences of the hearers and feel a peculiar consciousness of their own weakness and insufficiency, and at the same time a perfect reliance upon the efficacy of the gospel through the agency of the Holy Spirit to convict men. Christians, during periods of revival, are characterized by unusual spirits of penitence, of confession of sin and of prayer, by a desire for more holiness, and especially by a tender concern for salvation of souls. Unconverted persons are more desirous to hear the gospel, and particularly the plainest and simplest exhibitions of it, they readily listen to conversations on the subjects and seem to actually expect it. Truths which they have frequently heard and are totally unconcerned with, now they hear with solemn and fixed attention. And in many cases, for days together, scarcely a sermon will be preached or an exhortation offered which is not made effectual to the conviction or conversions of one or more souls. Went to a prayer breakfast in Lapine yesterday with a few guys from our church. And we began to talk about what is God going to do in our church that'd be different than any other church in reaching this town and converting sinners. And we just began to talk and reason, and we said, you know what, probably in our testimonies, we've seen that most of the most, you know, the most powerful times of conversions and raising up disciples, not so much are from street witnessing, which is awesome and has its place, but from people bringing their friends into the church where they hear the clear preaching of the gospel from the word of God laid out plainly to them. And then they also at the same time get to see the body of Christ assembled together, everybody using their gifts. And they say, you know what? I want that. The Holy Spirit convicting them of their sin and of God's righteousness and of the judgment to come. And then showing, look what I've provided for you as every member of the church does its share. Wouldn't it be amazing if not only we and our kids and our wives came to these sessions of reading through the word and getting together and praying for one another, but if we brought non-believers to witness what the church of Christ is all about. Pray for revival. William Sprague went on to write in Lectures in Revival that revival is a sovereign, supernatural work of God. And this is significant bearing on how we should seek it. He then references Francis Whalen saying three things that we should do as a prelude to the outpouring of God's spirit in revival. Number one, we need to put away all known sin. Number two, set aside part of a season for fasting and prayer and humiliation, both individually and collectively. Praise God, we're doing it, okay? And third is... Uh, more frequently and more faithfully, 
preaching the gospel. Francis Whalen went on to say, the doctrines which have been most successfully exhibited in the promotion of revivals in religion include especially the entire lack of holiness in all men by nature. We preach it. The justice of God and the everlasting condemning of sinners. We preach it. The exceeding sinfulness of sin. The total inability of man by his own works to reconcile himself to God. We preach it. The sufficiency, freedom, and fullness of the atonement. Preaching that Jesus' blood has paid the ransom price to free us from our sin. And we're justified by his blood alone. The duty of immediate repentance. And by faith in Jesus Christ. The inexcusableness of delay. The exhibition of the refuges of lies under which sinners hide themselves. The sovereignty of God and the salvation of sinners. The clear exhibition of the truth that he is under no manner of obligation to save them. And the necessity of the agency of the Spirit of God to the conversion of any individual of the human race. God gets all the glory in a revival. We see it's not about us. In other words... Five truths accent revivals. We preach it. Not just me, but ye, you guys. Justice and holiness and that God judges all sinners. The desperate and hopeless condition of men. The glory of Christ's work. The free and sovereign grace of God. And the utter necessity of repentance and of faith. If there's anything that signifies seriousness... It's when you want something so badly, you'll stop eating in pursuit of it. How bad do you want to see revival? Or when the absence of something in your life or in the church or in the world grieves you so badly, you would give up eating to express your humiliation and your longing to see it come. You get a church history book and you see that times of revival were sparked by men and women putting aside themselves and gathering together to pray, gathering together to fast. Jonathan Edwards, who led the Great Awakening a hundred years before William Sprague wrote Lectures on Revival of Religions, Jonathan Edwards says, One more thing I would mention concerning fasting and prayer, wherein I think there's been a neglect in ministers And that is that although they recommend and much insist in the duty of secret prayer in their preaching, so little is said about secret fasting. It is a duty recommended by our Savior to his followers just in like manner as secret prayer is. As may be seen in comparing Matthew chapter 6 verses. Though I don't suppose that secret fasting is to be practiced in a stated manner and steadily coursed as secret prayer, yet it seems to me tis a duty that all professing Christians should practice and frequently practice. That God in our lives would redig the wells of fasting that we have filled in over the years. Or perhaps you've never had those wells dug in the first place. And that even today, God would by his spirit dig out these wells that waters of refreshing and revival might pour into them. Now, either Jonathan Edwards is wrong or 95% of us are wrong because probably 5% of us are barely fasting at all. Should we fast? As Jesus says, when you pray, let your prayers be like this. But then he says in Matthew 6, when you fast. 
It's not if you pray, if you fast, if you feel like it, if it's convenient. I know your life is tough. No, when you pray and when you fast. Now, R.A. Torrey wrote a book called How to Pray, and we went through it at The Pulse. Wonderful book. R.A. Torrey was, uh, among many things, a man who joined Dwight L. Moody in his evangelistic work in Chicago back in 1889. He became superintendent of Moody Bible Institute, and five years later became the pastor at Chicago Avenue Church until 1894. Now, R.A. Torrey 12 or 13 chapters in the book, How to Pray, wrote something that was so convicting to me as we read it that I had to go back and find it so I could read it to you today. And the question is posed, do you really want a revival? Do you really want a revival? People ask for things which they do not wish. Many a woman is praying for the conversion of her husband who does not really wish that her husband to be converted. She thinks that she does, but if she knew what would be involved in the conversion of her husband, how it would necessitate an entire revolution of his manner of doing business, and how consequently it would reduce their income and make necessary an entire change in their method of living, the real prayer of her heart would be if she were as sincere to God, Oh God, do not convert my husband. She does not wish his conversion at so great a cost. Many a church is praying for revival, but they do not really desire a revival. They think they do. To them, revival means an increase in membership, an increase of income, an increase of reputation among the churches. But if they knew what a real revival meant, what a searching for hearts in the part of professed Christians would be involved, what a radical transformation of individual, domestic, and social life would be brought about, and many other things that would come to pass if the Spirit of God was poured out in reality and in power. If all this were known, the real cry of the church would be, Oh God, keep us from having a revival. Many a minister is praying for the baptism of the Holy Spirit, who does not really desire it. He thinks he does. For the baptism with the Holy Spirit means to him new joy, new power in preaching the word, a wider reputation among men, a larger prominence in the church of Christ. But if he understood what a baptism with the Holy Spirit really involved, for example, it would necessarily bring him into antagonism with the world and with unspiritual Christians, how it would cause his name to be cast out as evil, how it might necessitate his leaving a good, comfortable living and going down to work in the slums or even in some foreign land. If he understood all this, his prayer would quite likely be if we were to express the real wish to God, oh God, save me from being baptized with the Holy Ghost. But when do we come to the place where we really desire the conversion of friends at any cost, really desire the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, whether it may involve, whatever it may involve, really desire the baptism with the Holy Ghost, come what may, where there's desire, anything in truth, we call upon God in truth, God is going to hear. And so as verse 11 says, we fast for revival. We fast for waters that do not fail. Isaiah chapter 58 has tremendous bearing for where we are as a church and where we're going for, or what we're going towards in our church. Isaiah 58 verse 11 is a mandate for us and for our future. It's significant for our ministry that we would be a water garden. You guys are gardeners, right? You guys are Oregonians. Of course you are, green thumbs. 
Picture that lush, green, watered garden. Picture that stream of water in the desert, how refreshing it is. We fast for the water. We fast for the baptism of the Holy Spirit and for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. Just as the first one was in Acts chapter 2, verse 1. It was the day of Pentecost when it had fully come. They were all with one accord in one place. Going to sound familiar for this week? Suddenly there came a sound from heaven as of a rushing mighty wind and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. Then there appeared to them divided tongues as of fire and one sat upon each of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. So they were together. They were waiting, as Jesus had said in Acts chapter 1, you go wait in Jerusalem for the promise of the Father and you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you and you'll be witnesses and martyrs for me in Judea and Jerusalem to the uttermost parts of the world. You guys know the story. They begin to speak in tongues. Other people from 17 other countries, 19 other countries, begin to hear the translation, the interpretation. They begin to hear their own language, and they wondered, what was this? How the marvelous works of God were being proclaimed in their all 19 languages. What is going on? And so Peter stood up and began to preach it. Revival took place. In Acts 2.38, Peter said to them, Repent, let every one of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the remission of sins. And you shall receive the gift of the Holy Spirit for the promises to you and to your children and to all who are afar off, as many as the Lord our God will call. And with many other words, he testified and exhorted them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. Then those who gladly received his word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. We press in and fast this week for a revival similar to that in Acts chapter 2. We fast for waters that do not fail. We fast for the baptism and outpouring of the Holy Spirit, the continual filling and outpouring and upon of the Holy Spirit upon our lives. We fast for the gifts of the Holy Spirit. 1 Corinthians 12.1 says, Now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. And sadly, we are ignorant of the very tools and the very weapons that edify God's church, build up God's church, and further his kingdom. Verse 4 of 1 Corinthians 12 says, There are diversities of gifts, but the same Spirit. There are differences of ministries, but the same Lord. There are differences of activities, but it's the same God who works all in all. The manifestation of the Spirit, the gifts or the appearance of the Spirit, is given to each one for the profit of all. To one's given the word of wisdom through the Spirit. To another, the word of knowledge through the same Spirit. To another, faith by the same Spirit. To another, gifts of healings by the same Spirit. To another, the working of miracles or prophesy, prophecy or discerning of spirits, different kinds of tongues, interpretation of tongues. But one in the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually as he will. And so as we fast this week, we fast for the water of the Holy Spirit that will not fail. And you know what? I'm kind of silly, but I skipped one of the most important scriptures linking the water to the Holy Spirit. If the slideshow dude can do it, let's go back to John 7, or do that, sorry. John 7, 37, you can just listen if it's not there. On the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. 
He who believes in me, as the scripture said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke concerning the spirit and whom those believing in him would receive. For the Holy Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. And so we fast for the waters that do not fail, the torrents of living water that Jesus prophesied of, manifesting himself in our lives through spiritual gifts that build up the church. So sad. I've just been doing little surveys as I've just been with people, asking them, hey, what's your spiritual gift or gifts? And people that have been Christian for eons have no clue what their spiritual gifts are. Many of you have no clue if you even have a spiritual gift. There's a neglect of spiritual gifts within our church. There's the ignorance that Paul said, I don't want you to be ignorant of spiritual gifts. And so we press in for more spiritual gifts, for repentance even, of a lack of care for spiritual gifts within our church. And that God would distribute the gifts as he wills this week. And that he would even put in our hearts a desire, an earnest desire for the best gift. That, that Paul tells us to earnestly desire the best gifts. And those are the gifts that are needed at the moment. God, give us those gifts. And so you hear all this and you don't feel like fasting yet. And you don't feel like praying. It's easy to talk of fasting when the stomach is full. But what about when you've begun your fast and you start discussing fasting? You don't feel like fasting, praying, or gathering to read. Ari Tori says, oftentimes we come to God in prayer. We do not feel like praying. What shall one do in such a case? Cease praying until he feels like it? Cease fasting until he feels like it? Not at all. When we feel least like praying is the time when we need most to pray. We should wait quietly before God and tell him how cold and prayerless our hearts are. And look to him and trust him and expect him to send the Holy Spirit to warm our hearts and draw them out in prayer. It would not be long before the glow of the Spirit's presence will fill our heart and we will begin to pray with freedom, directness, earnestness, and power. Many of the most blessed seasons of prayer I've ever known have begun with a feeling of utter deadness and prayerlessness. But in my helplessness and coldness, I've cast myself upon God, looked to Him to send His Holy Spirit to teach me to pray, and He has done it. You don't feel like it? Don't run away. Run to Jesus this week. Run to this assembled congregation. Be part of it, even in your weakness, and he will be faithful to answer you. Stuart, you can come on up. Worship team, come on up. And finally, verse 13, we see that we fast to delight ourselves in the Lord, to be part of his Sabbath rest. Let's delight ourselves in the Lord. Let's worship him in this fast. Some of you, still may be thinking, I just don't have much to fast for. I don't have major battles going on in my life. Here's a concept. What about fasting with thanksgiving? What a concept. I just want to fast because I'm so thankful, Lord. We all have something to fast for. You know, Romans 1 tells us that the depraved heart is unthankful. Philippians 4, 6 says that when we do go and pray, we're to come with thanksgiving. Perhaps you'll pray with thankfulness and fast with thankfulness. So encouraged this week to hear a few different people, one gal taking seven days of vacation 
from her job to be at every session that we're going to have this week. Are the things we've talked about worth that to you? Not that you have to do that, but would you make any kind of sacrifice similar to that? Another gal started a three-day fast early on this week because she was so desperate for the touch of Jesus. And she joins us again today. Another man took a time this week to fast just to pray about what he should be fasting for this week. Is there a care at all? If not, I just urge you, just go spend some time with the Lord this afternoon and just seek him and ask him what he would have you do. I close with Hosea 10, 12. Sow for yourselves righteousness, reap in mercy, break up your fallow ground. For it's time to seek the Lord till he comes and rains righteousness on you. Teaching my son last night at dinner as I finished my last meal for a week and just said, son, your dad's gonna be going into a season of fasting, explaining to him what fasting is and then encouraging him. What would you give up for the presence of God, for the touch of God in your life? We've been studying Samuel and how he kept hearing the voice of the Lord when he was a little boy. It would wake him up in the night. He kept going to Eli. What do you want, Eli? What do you want? Then finally, Eli said, it's the Lord calling you. So say, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening the next time he speaks. And so Russell's been going to bed saying, speak, Lord. Your servant is listening. And I said, son, how bad do you want to hear the voice of the Lord? So my son fasting from chocolate hot milky this week at various times or juice, fasting from video games. We were brainstorming what he could fast from and he said, I could fast from going outside. Very convenient since he has a new Toy Story 3 video game. <laughs> then just me and him driving to church this morning and he said, I could fast from sin. N no, I could sin more. <laughs> No, son, no, son. <laughs> but what a teachable moment for our wives and for our kids. God's teaching us something here. He's teaching me every year that we do this. We expect the Lord to do great things as we attempt great things for the Lord. You've been listening to Pastor Rory Rogers, pastor of Calvary Chapel of Crook County, located in Primeville, Oregon. For more information on this ministry, or if you'd like to contribute, please feel free to write us at P.O. Box 378, Primeville, Oregon 97754. Or check us out further at our website at www.calvarycrookcounty.com. We thank you so much for listening, and we pray that this ministry has blessed you.